Hey everyone, this is Shannon, and we are so close to our next big event, Night to Shine. Uh, this will be the second year that Bridges hosts Night to Shine on our campus, and if you have not been involved in this event before, it is February 9th this year, and it is a prom-like event for those in our community with disabilities, ages 16 and older. Uh, if you go to bridges.info and scroll down to the service opportunities section and then scroll down to the Night to Shine article, there will be a link that you can click on to view the different service opportunities and it will take approximately 600 volunteers to make this night happen. And we are 20% of the way, so still lots of opportunities for you to help with. Um, also on that page where the link is, there's a GoFundMe button and you can give some monetary donations toward our event, which takes over $20,000 to put on this event. Uh, you can also write a check and put Night to Shine in the memo line and stick it in the offering box or do your regular giving and click on the Compassion tab and scroll down to the Night to Shine button. I hope most of all that you'll be praying that uh, that evening there's no rain, but also anyone and everyone that walks onto this campus will feel God's love. They will feel His presence and um, the true meaning of the night, which uh, is that they are made in God's image and that they are His creation made for a purpose. So pray with me and I hope we'll see you there. stand together and sing.
to my soul that you've already won and even though I can't see I'm gonna keep believing that every promise you made is as good as done I gave you my worship you still deserve it
say amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning and welcome to Bridges Community Church. Thanks for joining us for worship this morning. If we've never had a chance to meet, my name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. We are thankful for each and every one of you. We are glad that we can gather together here today and we can worship, that we can crown him Lord of all and sing that with all our might, with all the breath in our lungs. So we'll continue doing that this morning. But if you haven't been here uh, the last few weeks, uh, you know that we have had a team down in Baja, Mexico. They are back. They are safe. They are here. Uh, and we have a little video that was put together of their trip and a little bit of testimony about what happened. Um, and if it's not clear, they went to Baja. They built two houses for families that didn't have houses. Uh, built two houses in two days, and then uh, did outreach in the Rosarito and um, Tijuana areas. So uh, let's take a look at the videos.
Being here in Mexico, I feel like there's a lot different, but a lot of it is similar. Like all the people all still have the same spiritual needs. and um, But something that's interesting is they seem a lot more willing to uh, listen uh, to the gospel and like open up and um, seeing that I really, um, really like made me think like how great the gospel is and how uh, there are times that I just kind of hear it and I'm like, yeah, that's great and don't really think much of it because I hear it so often. But being here and seeing how it's really changed so many people's lives um, makes me remember how it should change my life and how we all should remember the gospel for truly what it is. Uh, the Lord brought a woman during the ministry time who came and um, with rheumatoid arthritis and um, yeah he um, he touched yeah he touched her she started to share about her past with me and um, yeah and she felt like she was able to forgive her father who had abandoned her when she was young uh, right when her arthritis had started and um, so the Lord says we uh, we're only forgiven by him if we forgive others and so that was a beautiful moment of her being able to reconcile and forgive her father even though he'd already passed on. God has definitely taught me a lot on this trip being someone who has never done construction work ever in my life I definitely felt um, God teaching me humility and to ask questions and to just be willing to learn and uh, yeah, God was pushing against my pride um, in like little whispers throughout the day. So that was awesome to see. God has shown me a lot on this trip. I think definitely his presence and his movement, the movement by we are coming here and the people there were getting a house and it just great show of God's love. And you can just see that the Holy Spirit is definitely moving in these people's lives and showing us how much we need God, both rich and poor. Uh, I was really impressed by all of the helpers that were there, people who were directing this construction from Baja Mission and how well they have prepared everything and how much they care for the people in this country. And also was very impressed by the simplicity of people uh, who we met in this small village and by the sheer amount of needs that they have, but yet the joy that they still have in all of this. It was very touching. And, and their thankfulness, they were very, very thankful. Such a lesson for us. celebrate together. Yeah, that's great. What a great opportunity that was, and I, I've enjoyed getting to hear the stories from several of the people who went. So if you know anyone that went, I'm sure they would love to share uh, their story with you. Um, and if you don't know anyone that went on the trip, find someone whose picture you recognize from there, 
meet them and find out all about their trip because it'd be a great way to get to know them. But uh, we have so many ways that we serve the community here and the community globally. Uh, we got outreach uh, that we do through the church, uh, partnering with the church uh, here in our local community, and we got trips like this one to Baja, and I think there's one being planned for this summer all the way to Brazil, so I encourage everyone to get involved either locally or globally or both, and uh, let's shed, uh, share the light of Jesus through serving these communities. So thank you to the team. Can we say thank you one more time to our team at Rome? Uh, we're going to continue our singing together, and uh, this next song is a song we introduced a little while ago when we did a series on lament. We haven't done it for a little while, so this might uh, be new to you, or it might be uh, refreshing your memory, but um, as we think about lament, this song reminds us of uh, two sections of scripture. One is in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus heals a boy, and uh, the father says to Jesus, I believe help my unbelief. You know, and there's times we just sang in the beginning of service, we sang, I'll never stop singing your praise. But if we're honest, sometimes what we need to sing is, God, help me not stop singing your praise because I am weak. And maybe we're in that season right now and we need to say to Jesus, I believe, Lord, help me believe. And then Psalm 42 and 43 have this, um, this passage in both of those psalms, and it says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So let's keep those passages in mind while we're reminded of the song. I'm 
someone up on the platform with us who hasn't been here in a while. And if you haven't been here, he's just going to look new to you, uh, but a regular member of our worship team. And uh, Jason is back with us today, visiting uh, today. And I wanted to point it out because he kind of just disappeared. And really what happened was during the pandemic, um, he moved to Boston. And we didn't know that because while we were online, he was still part of our worship team, just emailing me all of his tracks and videos, and we were including him in our videos, but uh, we were here, and he was in Boston, so none the wiser. He was still part of our worship team, but then when we came back in person, he just wasn't here, and man, we have missed you, but welcome back uh, to Bridges. You are always welcome here, and uh, this is still your home. I don't care. Uh, That's what it is, so let's welcome Jason back with us this morning. Would you stand, and let's continue to worship together this morning. gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer 
go ahead and have a seat. We'll have our elementary school students join Miss Alba in the back, and Rachel's going to come up and read our scripture this morning. Psalm 13, 1 and 2. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Psalm 30, 4 and 5. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Psalm 39, 12 and 13. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. Psalm 126, four through six. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping carry seed to sow will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Thank you, Rachel. I have a discussion question for you all. I'm not going to give you a long time to discuss it, but about 15 years ago, Larry Osborne, who's the, uh, one of the teaching pastors at North Coast Church in Vista, and they have multiple campuses, and some of our staff have been to some of their conferences in the past. He wrote a provocative-sounding book that I really like. It's called Tim... 10 Dumb Things That Smart Christians Believe. And some of you are like, there's only 10 of them? <laughs> I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want to see if you can name the number one thing, the first dumb thing that smart Christians believe. Just I'll give you just a few seconds here. Right. Not as much discussion as normal, maybe because you're not sitting next to somebody you want to talk about this with. You could have talked about the Niners and how they pulled out a great victory last night. Never in doubt. Never in doubt. They had it the whole way, right? Sheesh. I'll tell you, though, the number one thing that is in this book, and I would agree with this, is being, listen, we're in a room full of smart, rational people, logical people here. But many, many Christians, myself included, in many seasons of my life, have believed a particular um, false assumption, uh, if you will, a spiritual urban legend, a complete myth, and it is this. Uh, the number one thing is that if we are really trusting in God, if we're really walking closely with Him and seek to obey Him, then we won't ever weep, we won't ever feel anger, we won't ever feel hopeless, and God won't let too many bad things happen to us. That's the number one dumb thing that many smart Christians, myself included, have believed or still believe. I've heard it preached from pulpits in the form of a health and wellness kind of a, you know, prosperity gospel. Some of you have heard it. You'll hear it on podcasts. You'll read it on in books and all of these things. 
But the point is, is this idea that many of us buy into the idea that if you are doing all the things that God wants you to do, then you won't ever feel sorrow. And if you do feel any of those things that I mentioned earlier, then you need to stop for goodness sake because it's wrong to feel those things and you need to pull yourself together. What's wrong with you? When you're faced with the realities of living in a broken world, God really isn't all that interested in your feelings or your emotions. So just have more faith, become an overcomer. And just get over your tribulations and start rejoicing in them instead. That's typically the kind of self-narrative that we hear or we hear from other people. Now, a couple dangers that I think we could probably point out here related to buying into this myth. The first thing is, if you and I try to avoid feelings and grief and sorrow altogether, you can try to do that. You can try to put things out of your mind. You can try to force yourself to think more positively. That's what many of us try to do. Again, logical, rational people here. Many of us are frankly uncomfortable with feelings. We want to deny the depth and darkness of our emotions. Or we think that God will punish us for not having enough faith. And so we tend to stuff our emotions. But doing so, I think that this is the danger here, can turn you into a legalist and into a Pharisee who is an awful comforter to other people who are walking through sorrow will make you judgmental of others and make you feel superior to them who are wrestling with tough feelings or it will make you hard and inhuman and it will erupt later on because it just gets stored up in you and then it just, you know, just spills out on you and on other people later on. It just, it bites you and it devastates you to have that kind of thought because it's not realistic. It's just not realistic. We're human beings made in God's image. God has emotion. God has feelings. And so do we. It's a good gift from God. The other danger, though, is to see the expression of your feelings, like many of us in the Western world do, to see our feelings almost as a good end in themselves. And we end up bowing to our feelings. Almost as if to say, well, those are my honest feelings, and so I just have to, you know, go with my feelings. To do that, though, is also, un- is also unhealthy and harmful. Here's what we know. And I think you all know this intuitively, but we still buy into this, again, dumb thing that many of us believe. The Bible doesn't tell us to deny our feelings, nor does it endorse rashly or carelessly venting whatever your feelings are in the moment. And we need, therefore, a different approach, a different way of responding to the realities of the brokenness and the suffering and the sorrow in this world that happens to us and that happens to other people. And that different way is what the Bible calls lament. I've spoken about lament. I preached a sermon on this just uh, almost two years ago, whenever we were in our series on the book of Job. You know, sometimes we find ourselves at a loss for words. You ever been like that? You see something, you sense something. Some of our team experienced this in Mexico, where you see something in a new way. And you just don't really know how to process it. And that can happen in any number of circumstances. When you hear about how wars are still going on in other places. Or perhaps somebody has stabbed you in the back in some way. And it's so personal. And you feel like, I, I, I don't even know how to process this. But it's a completely reasonable response to living in a world that is not our permanent home. We're in the middle of this six-week sermon series, as we've talked about. We've entitled Exiled, How to Live in a World, or How to Live in a Place that Isn't Home. We've been talking about how as Christians, all of us are in a very real sense spiritual exiles, resident aliens who are living between two worlds. Our current world, 
we know is tainted by sin and suffering and selfishness and hostility and injustice and things that just make our blood boil, violence, oppression, poverty, persecution, all kinds of garbage that are the direct consequences of, as Genesis 3 tells us, us choosing to be our own bosses and masters and thereby losing the garden. We lost the garden. We lost our home. The garden was our home, and it was the only place where every need we have was met and fulfilled. But now we are spiritual exiles, spiritually homeless, so to speak, and that's why we live in a world that does not sustain and support the deepest needs of our hearts. And it's why we're all longing for a better home, and so that's why we're going through this series is to talk about how do I live in a world that is not really my home. And it's in this context of living in a broken world that God gives us in the Bible the language of lament. Simply put, this is what lament is. Lament is the language of exile. It's your native tongue. We just may not realize it or not. Some of us are like, lament. I don't fully understand in Scripture when people are like lamenting before God. I don't understand why more than a third of the 150 Psalms are actually laments. Are we allowed to pray like that? It's the language of exile, lament is, because lament freely acknowledges there's something really wrong with the world. Biblical lament is not therapy. It's about us being whole human beings. Whenever we go through times of stress and tragedy and hardness and loss, stuff happens inside of us we don't understand, and again, we can't put words to. Things get misaligned and distorted when we feel out of sorts and our shalom breaks down. So the biblical language of lament that we see in Scripture is God's way of inviting us to process with Him all that's going on inside of us including all of our feelings and our emotions and all of what is going on in the world today. God actually invites us to talk like this with him, to specifically name what is wrong and to give attention to it. It's not angry, wallowing prayer. It's being honest with God about our feelings. It's not a personal pity party. Some of us think of lament as being grumbling often because of first world problems or things that are inconvenient to us in some way. That's not what lament is. Lament is also not complaining against God, complaining against his character, questioning him, putting him on trial, just like the Israelites did. Remember when they were in the wilderness and saying, God, you did this to us, and therefore you were not good. That's not what lament is. Biblical lament is instead complaining to God based on confidence in his character. Let me say that again. Lament is complaining to God based on confidence in his character, asking him to answer according to his character, according to his unfailing love. Why? Because he's a God of justice. Because we know he's a God of righteousness and because we know he's been faithful in the past and so we come to him saying, God, I trust that you can handle this heavy stuff, what I'm feeling and processing right now. I don't like it and yet I trust you. That's what lament is. So we're not expected by God to ignore the fact that we're exiles. Don't, like, you are an exile. I'm an exile. Let's not ignore that fact. Or to ignore the very real problems of the world that we have real weight and consequences to them, and we're not expected to just turn our frown upside down. Christianity is not escapism. 
And not everything that happens in the world has a simple pat answer. Sometimes Christians want to have an answer for everything. Not everything has an answer, friends. It's okay. So perhaps what we need more than ever is to recover the biblical tradition of lament. Lament is what happens when spiritual exiles like you and me ask why, and we don't necessarily get an answer. It's where we get to when we as exiles move beyond any self-centered worry about our own sins and our own how we've been inconvenienced. And then we begin to look more broadly at the suffering of the world and say, why, God? Why is this happening to this person or that person? Lament gives us freedom to express how we really feel, like in the Psalms that Rachel just read a moment ago. And here's what these Psalms teach us. I just gave you a sampling of them. I want to talk about those particular ones we read. But again, more than a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Here's the first lesson that lament teaches us in Scripture. We should very much expect sorrows in this world. We should expect them. Look at Psalm 126 again. There is some debate about what these verses are specifically describing, those six verses that Rachel didn't read all of them. She just read four through six of chapter 126. But if you look at the first three verses, you see that there's like things are going well for the psalmist. And there's some, like John Calvin was insistent that this is referring to the return of the children of Israel from Babylon after having been in exile, and so they're exulting. But then verse 4 takes a really, really dark turn. We're not really sure. It ultimately doesn't matter, I guess, so much as mattering or noticing the mood of verse 4 and how it changes, where the psalmist talks about the Negev, N-E-G-E-V, the Negev. The Negev is the southernmost part of Israel. It's the driest part of Israel. There are several months where there is drought and there's barrenness there. The name Negev literally means parched. It's a desert. It's wilderness. It's bone dry. It's, du it's dusty and it's lifeless. So again, we don't know precisely what the psalmist uh, is referring to here in terms of circumstances. We just know that they're saying that their lives were feeling like a desert. <coughs> Excuse me. What is the point? What do we learn from Psalm 126, or from passages like Psalm 13 that Rachel read a little bit. It says, how am I going to feel this way? How long am I going to feel this way, God? How long are you going to let injustice happen? How long are you going to let suffering take place, God? How long? The point of all that is that we learn that even if God is in your life, and even if you are walking with him, you and I should expect sorrow and difficulty and grief in this world Lots of it. There doesn't appear to be any indication in Psalm 126 here that the people had strayed from God's ways. They're not saying it was because of their sin that their lives felt like the Negev, like a desert. They're not saying it was because they had done something wrong. They hadn't been having their morning devotionals. They hadn't been praying enough. They hadn't been good enough. No, as exiles in this world, that's what you and I are, we shouldn't be surprised when these types of seasons come our way, not just because we live in a world where things often go wrong. If anything, we need to realize that the Bible indicates that when you become a person of faith, that may actually lead you and may actually lead me as exiles to weep and to feel the sting of the brokenness of this world even more. Why? Because Jesus said in this world you will have trouble. 
And that's true not just because we're exiles who live in a fallen world. It is true because of that. But it's also because when you become a follower of Jesus, God replaces your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Scripture says a heart of flesh is soft and it's more vulnerable than a heart of stone. And that's what God does when you come to faith. In other words, you and I will more acutely feel the evil and the pain around us, and we will also acutely feel the pain of others around us who are the victims of evil and injustice. We'll feel the things around us that, frankly, we just didn't before. And if we don't feel those things, I would ask the question, are you, are you sure that you're a Christian? Is it possible that we love this world more than we love God, if we truly don't feel that tension, and again, not like in a, God, this is inconvenient for me, like a first world problem kind of a way, but actually feeling a brokenness over our suffering and really the suffering and injustice in the world. The more we grow in grace, the more that we grow in faith, the more that we are conformed more to the likeness of Jesus, the more we should expect not only these types of sorrows, but to feel them in a very visceral way. And if we don't, that's not normal. As exiles, we should feel it. Jesus came to the earth. Here's why we know this. Jesus came to the earth. He had a perfect human heart, didn't he? And one thing we know about him is that despite Jesus' perfect heart is he was very well acquainted with grief. He walked perfectly with God, but we surely wouldn't say nothing bad ever happened to him. So it's a logical for you and for me as exiles to want to become like Jesus and to think that as long as I'm good and as long as I'm walking with God, God will spare me from seasons of drought and from pain and sorrow and frustration and loneliness that comes with being an exile in this world. There's actually some good news here, I want to tell you. It's not all wilderness. There is some gospel hope that allows us to see beyond this life and in this place to the next life where we will finally be home again. Look at what happens to the psalmist David at the end of Psalm 39 that was read for us a little bit ago. There's still pain. There's still sorrow and lament. There's still tears. Because even with solid gospel hope, sometimes life in this broken world hurts and it's painful and it's hard. But the pain and the suffering of this world are only temporary for believers in Christ. And David reminds himself that although the season of suffering seems unending, he is just a foreigner and a stranger in this world. He knew that this pain doesn't last forever because we don't belong here. And notice also at the end of Psalm 39 that David does not say that he was a foreigner or a stranger from God. That would be awful to be a foreigner or a stranger in exile from God. But what he says is, I dwell with you, God, as a foreigner and a stranger. That's a big difference. I dwell with you, God, as a foreigner and an exile and a stranger. Meaning, yes, he knew he was an exile in this world, but he was not alone, and he knew that. Neither are you, neither am I. We will surely have trouble and sorrow in this life, but it is only temporary, and as we go through it, he is with us. These laments also teach us not only should we expect sorrows, but too, that we should take our sorrows, we're supposed to harvest them. Let's think about this. Look again at Psalm 126, verses 5 through 6. It says this, those who sow with tears will reap tears? 
No, we'll reap with songs of joy. Those who go out with weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with more weeping? No, we'll return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. I used to love hearing Tim Keller talk about this metaphor. And one of the last videos I remember that he recorded during COVID, he and his wife Kathy are talking about this passage and this concept. His insights into the passage have really stayed with me. What this metaphor is saying is that your tears, your sorrows, which again are the natural consequences of being in exile in this world, when sown properly, can bring you a harvest of joy. And one of the implications of this fact is that it is entirely possible for you and for me to actually waste our sorrows, to waste our tears, to waste our lament, to waste our grumbling, like a farmer going out into the field with a sack of seed and instead of sowing the seed all over, just dumping it in one spot. You're not going to get a harvest from that. No harvest comes from just squandering it. And if the farmer just walks out with a big bag of seed and carelessly dumps it, there's not going to be a harvest either. So what does the farmer have to do? The farmer has to plant the seed, sowing it wisely. What this is saying, friends, to you and to me, is that it is possible for us to grieve as exiles in this world in such a way that it doesn't produce any fruit in your life at all. To squander our grief and our sorrow. Your tears and your sorrow, your laments before God as exiles, are actually opportunities for fruitfulness and growth. So don't waste your sorrows. And we're like, what kind of advice is that? Don't waste your sorrows. We spend all kind of energy trying to avoid sorrows. But are sorrows of any use? Can they be recycled or upcycled into something of value? Apparently so. In Psalm 56, 8, in the New Living Translation, David says this, You, God, keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. So David is picturing God as recording every painful episode that you go through, even bending closely and collecting your tears in a bottle. It's a powerful image. And what it tells us is this, friends, God sees every one of your tears, the ones that you physically cry and also the ones that you feel inside. God hears every groan. He says, I know you're in exile and I know that it's difficult. Just know that I feel what you're feeling. That's what God is saying. You're not forgotten. You're not alone. And there is a day coming when there won't be any more tears for me to wipe, to capture, and to catch. They're all going to be wiped away. So don't waste our sorrows. Don't be in such a rush to avoid them, but instead, how do we lean into the sorrows and use it as an opportunity to lean into God more? How many times has a person gone through a sorrow and pain in this world and is actually looking back and saying, I'm actually grateful because this happened in my life and it's actually now have a testimony that I can share with other people. Some of you know exactly what that's like. What is the reward for doing this? What is the reward for harvesting our sorrows and our tears and investing them well? What are the sheaves? It's not more tears, it's joy. This is really a mind-boggling thing here. 
This is going beyond what most of us would even hope that the Bible teaches. We hope that the Bible teaches that tears and sorrows will give way to joy. We hope that. And that is indeed the case, as we heard in Psalm 30, where it says that weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. But this is so much deeper here in Psalm 126. This is saying, if you harvest your sorrows well, you steward them, these sufferings that you're going through, that the sorrows will actually produce joy. We've all heard the phrase, you reap what you sow, right? Psalm 126 is saying the exact opposite. If you sow tears, you know what you're going to get? Joy. Here's a worship song that came out about 25 years ago that was called Trading My Sorrows. Maybe you've heard it. The lyrics are, I'm trading my sorrow. I'm trading my shame. I'm laying it down for the joy of the Lord. And I actually like the song at this time. It's great. But I started thinking about that song more last week. And I thought, wait a minute, Psalm 126 isn't actually telling us to trade in our sorrows so that we can have joy. Okay, God, I don't want the sorrow anymore, and so I just, I'm trading it here with you. It's really saying something more profound. It's not just saying that joy follows sorrow. It's really saying that the joy is actually produced by the sorrow. Do you see the difference? That's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says our light, our momentary troubles are achieving for us what? An eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we're not just waiting for sorrows to go away. That would be nice. And we're not really trading in our sorrow as if, okay, I'm trading this in for you. Why? Because our sorrows actually produce joy. Isn't that crazy? They're... There is a kind of joy that comes from avoiding sorrow and tears, but it doesn't really change you. It doesn't change your heart. It doesn't last. It's not fruitful. What this is saying, though, is there is a kind of joy that is possible that comes through your sorrow and your pain and your lament and your tears that does change you, and it does last. Do you believe that? It's certainly possible. Okay, so how do we go about harvesting our tears, leveraging them, investing them, using them wisely? How do we harvest our sorrows? Third, what these Psalms teach us is we do it by praying our sorrows, by praying our sorrows. As exiles, resident aliens in this world, we are to expect sorrows, we're to leverage them, not squandering them, but we're instead to harvest them and invest them well. And thirdly, we are to pray our sorrows. We're to pray our weeping. One interesting thing about each of the laments that are in Scripture is they're actually prayers. Just about all of the Psalms are filled with fears and heartache and groaning and wrestling and shaking the fist at heaven and saying, how long, O Lord? And sometimes they end like Psalm 39, which I don't know if you noticed it, but kind of ends on a note of really incorrect theology. David says to God, look away from me, God. Turn your face away from me. Depart from me, God, so that I can have at least a little bit of peace before I die. And we're like, that's an actual prayer? That's in the Bible? And it ends with such overwhelming feelings that you're telling God to do the opposite of what he should be asking God to do? We're not supposed to pray like this. What is this even doing in the Bible? Here's what we should know. The very presence of these kinds of prayers in Scripture is telling us something. It's a witness 
to God's understanding and his grace. God knows how we speak when we are hurting, when we are desperate, when our status as exiles brings some type of just really strong feeling and emotion. God understands when we feel so overwhelmed that we say difficult things and sometimes even incorrect things. And he understands so much that God puts countless examples of laments in Scripture as a way to say to you and to me, you know it's actually okay to pray like this. You don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to stuff your feelings. It is safe to pour out your anger and your frustration and your deepest hurts to me in trust. And so we should ask, well, why is God so understanding of our pain and our weakness? I think you know the answer. It's because we have the only God who even claims, and the only scripture that claims that our God himself came down into this world, and he became what? A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the man of sorrow, said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus knows what it's like to look to God and to feel like God isn't even listening. Jesus knows what it's like to look to heaven and to not really hear anything. Jesus knows what it's like to be forsaken. He knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back. He knows what it's like to be persecuted. He knows what it's like to be an exile, a stranger in this world. And moreover, Jesus is the ultimate example, don't miss this, of someone who literally brought joy out of sorrow. Not just kind of, he literally brought joy out of sorrow. His agony and his weeping on the cross for you and for me was substitutionary. As he stood in our place, took our sins, our condemnation upon himself, and therefore when he took our punishment, his sorrow and his pain was the ultimate sowing in tears, was it not? And it brought about the greatest harvest of joy we could possibly imagine in our lives. So when we fix our eyes on him in Mexico, we had different devotionals every uh, morning as a team. And uh, on the third day, Nikolai Apkarov led us in a devotional about Hebrews 12 and fixing our eyes on Jesus. And we had a time of communion together. And that's just stayed with me. When we fix our eyes on Jesus and we remember him dying so that we might live and be reconciled to God the Father again, when we see him go through this incredible grief and sorrow, that enables us to experience an abundance of life that gives us hope in this world. While we look forward to one day returning to our eternal home. Listen, our Father is neither embarrassed nor irritated with your laments. He acknowledges and he validates your sorrows, the pain right now that you're experiencing, the losses, betrayals, confusion, pain, heartbreaks, injustice in this world. He understands it like no one else. God actually welcomes those prayers of pain. Don't just grumble about it internally. Pray those things in honesty with God. And really nothing is more freeing than knowing that God cares, that he understands, that knowing that when we are hurting, God feels the sting in his chest. Our frustrations and our questions don't fluster him. He knows all of them. He actually wrote the book on them. And more astoundingly, he invites us to come and to bring every single one of our cares and concerns and sorrows to him. Yes, we are exiles in this world. And no, you're not just exposed to grit your teeth and get through it by your own strength and pretend that 
you're not hurting. But to be real with God and allow him to transform our heart and not squander those sorrows so that God can bring fruit from it in our lives and we can connect in a deeper way with him. In this world, we will have trouble, but God is worthy of our lament. He is worthy of our song. He's worthy of us coming to him and saying, God, I trust you. So let's do that now. Let's bow our heads. I just want to give you a moment to just say a prayer or two of confession of trust in God. Maybe you're not really totally feeling it, but just go through this process if you don't mind and just be honest with God. Take a moment, and I'll be silent here in a second. Just take a moment to say, God, I trust you. Tell God that he is worthy of your song. Tell God that you give him your worship. Tell him, God, you are worthy of my lament. Friends, whatever you're going through today, whatever heaviness is on your heart, God feels it. He knows it. Turn to him and trust, humility. Ask him to be with you in the midst of these sufferings. And trust that he will is, and is able to turn your sorrow into joy, even in the midst of that sorrow. Father, thank you for your word today. It encourages us, it challenges us. Thank you that you are the only God who is like this. We bring our prayers to you. Change us, we pray in your name. Amen. Step down from 
sing that chorus, but this time just our voices. Hallelujah.
ahead and have a seat, and we're going to invite up one of our elders, Mark, to close our service today. Come on up, Mark. You guys noticed uh, today praises had a mood, like lamentating mood? We want to thank you for the praise team. I mean, it's not just about planning the music during the week, coordinating with the scriptures. You know, they take family time, you know, well, take out from family time to come and rehearse. They were here hours before the service. I think they really deserve our appreciation, right? Bridges.info. Uh, Bridges.info. It's, it's like a Costco. Everything you need about this church is right there. You need prayer requests? It's right there on the first one. Sermon, you want to review the sermon? It's there too. In fact, um, if you don't have a life group, one of the things I love about Bridges is the life group. It's not just about the food and the activities, but it's how we can grow our spirit, supporting one another in prayers uh, and, and you know, understanding and studying the scriptures. Uh, so if you don't have a life group, uh, do find one and let any of us know. We will tell you about our, our life groups. Uh, and it really helped to prepare our hearts uh, for the discussion of this 40s, uh, I mean the sermon for this uh, 40 day series. And also, we have news and event too, right on it. Oh, um, Night to Shine. Our, our church is hosting Night to Shine on February 9th. And uh, I just checked. There is um, one of the opportunities is to be a buddy. There's 350 buddy we need. We have 137 signed up. Um, so we do have a need, and if you can, it's actually fun activities. You kind of follow, you know, our special needs buddy around. Uh, you don't have to really do anything, just to make sure they're safe, make sure they got what they need, things like that. Uh, I did have to serve them meals, you know, to grab, you know, dinner for them. But that's it. Um, Life, uh, 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 Liberty Quartet tonight at 6 o'clock. You know, gentlemen, trust me, bring your honey over to a dinner and then a performance afterward, you're going to get brownie points. <laughs> oh, by the way, for those who sign up for, uh, to prepare um, gifts for Night to Shine, please head to the Family Center immediately after the service. Um, I'd like to take a moment to... Uh, to thank our church staff. Um, you know, our pastoral staff preparing the sermon throughout the week, uh, Alba and uh, uh, Lilia, they prefer, you know, they, they coordinate and plan for the nursery and the children ministry so we can spend time here, learn about the scripture. Um, and you know, I always wonder, because uh, Bay Area is an expensive place to live. And, you know, they have children's to go to school. And, and I think I really appreciate their efforts. Um, you know, their, their job, their responsibility to provide all these service for us so we can uh, connect with God, so we can grow in spirit. Uh, I think it is our responsibility also to take care of them and their family. Um, so I want to thank you, not only to our staff, but also you, because your types and orings is a big part of that to take care of our church family. Um, on a side note, uh, 
I'm in finance, so I want to bring this up to your attention. Last year, 2023, the stock market had done pretty well. S&P 500 went up 24%, and NASDAQ went up about 37%. So your taxable investment most likely had appreciated about 30%, more or less. And one way, you know, if you sell this, you know, liquidate this asset, you have to pay tax for Uncle Sam. But if you donate it to your church or charity, not only you don't have to pay tax, you can write off, there's a double tax advantage. So keep in mind, <laughs> I, I, there's no underlying in, in, in intention of this. But let me go ahead and close our service with prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you. Um, I want to thank you for our church. But also we want to thank you for the provision that you provide for us. Um, remind us that we have responsibility to take care of our church and those uh, who are in needs around us. Uh, we ask that you walk with us, change our hearts, um, so we become more like you. And remind us to focus on those around us. Share your message and your love um, with those around us. And I mean, after all, we are your children, and that is our identity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother and sister, Go in peace, serve our God.